Okay, pull out your notes for today's message if you would like to do that. Uh, last week, uh, and we're kind of in this series that we started last week for the first part of the, of the year here that we've called Starting Strong, and we're actually going to take it into next week as well. And we're going to talk about financial uh, strength. Pastor Dustin kind of hit on it a little bit just a moment ago, talking about finances. We're going to talk about how you can be strong financially next uh, or throughout this year, and we're going to deal with that next week. Today, I want to talk with you on the subject of starting strong. Last week, we dealt with the physical side of things. Today, we're going to talk about the spiritual side of things. And to do that, I want us to look at the first psalm, psalm number one, because when you read the first psalm, what you find is God's recipe or his instruction manual, if you will, for spiritual health and spiritual wholeness. So let's read the first psalm together. It says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around in, uh, with the sinners. Um, are you reading with me? Oh, I'm sorry. You don't have to do that. I, I was hearing this, you know, I don't know, what, what is that? At first I thought, maybe I'm on the wrong scripture or something, and you're trying to tell me I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm just going to read it, okay, and, and you just listen to me. <laughs> All right. Let's start again. Psalm number one. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with the mockers. The reason I didn't want you to read with me is because I want to comment about that one verse just real quickly. I'm not going to preach about this, but it, that verse, if you stop and think about it, it gives you a, a, a progression of evil. How, how we move from... Satan never takes us to the depths immediately. He, takes, he, he entices us up here and we gradually move on down. And so what you see is that gradual progression. And some people don't go all the way down, but uh, oftentimes that's, that's where you'll end up. And so it starts out with, what's he talking about? Uh, following the advice of wicked, that's influence, you know, letting wicked people influence you. And then standing around with sinners, that's association. It, we, it, it is perfectly proper for us to be um, friends with and, and tied in with people who are not uh, with us spiritually, but it's very important how far you let them get into your heart in terms of, uh, and if you're like, if you're married to an unbeliever, certainly you let them get into your heart in terms of their, their love for you and your love for them. However, there's that spiritual part that you will not compromise. You know, if you do, you end up standing around with sinners. So that means you're kind of in an agreement situation. You're hanging with them, you know, and then eventually you join in. And so you kind of see this progression of, of how you can be corrupted by the world system if you're not careful. Uh, and then it says, now blessed are those who don't do that, verse two, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all that they do. How many of you want to prosper in all that you do? Yeah, okay. Uh, but not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly, for the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. And so we're talking here this morning about being spiritually healthy, and really... What that is saying to us there is that God is giving you 
uh, a choice to make with your life. You can live your life in such a way as to bring the blessings and the favor of God upon you, or you can live your life in such a way that you will not experience the favor and the blessings of God upon your life. Now, this is what I have learned. Spiritual health is required for there to be spiritual blessings and the favor of God upon your life. But if you live your life in rebellion against God, it will, it will almost shield you. It will cut you off. It will hinder the blessings and the favor of God from flowing into your life. And if taken far enough, as, as a believer, it can put you under severe discipline. As a non-believer, it can bring you under judgment. Discipline and judgment are not the same thing. Discipline is for the believer from God. Judgment is for the unbeliever from God. And, and so, depending on your condition spiritually, it can bring you to a place of discipline or even judgment. Now, you need to understand that it is God's desire to give you his blessings and his favor. He wants to pour his favor into your lap. In fact, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 say that very thing. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Aren't you so glad for that? And then look at verse 20. They are, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That means that, that God is wanting to pour out his favor into each of our lives in a new way each day. So what God has done for you today, he wants to do something new for you tomorrow. He wants to not only renew it, but he wants to do it in a new way. These things can be new and renewed in your life every day. Be open for the new thing that God wants to do. That's his desire in your life. But again, your choices will either qualify you or disqualify you to receive those blessings and that favor from God. That's why the psalmist here is saying that we need to give careful attention to the way we live and the philosophy or the values by which we live our lives. Here's the bottom line. If you want 2015 to be significantly, to be substantially different for you spiritually, and if you want 2015 to be a year of overcoming the enemy, Maybe you've gone through years and years of continual defeat in your life, but you, you say, I want so much to be able to overcome uh, temptation, to be able to overcome. I had, a, I had a brother come up to me the, after the first service, and he says, and he has a real struggle with drug addiction, has had for years and years, and he came up to me at the, um, I believe it was, I believe it was at, the, at, at the Christmas Eve communion service. And I prayed over him. He says, you know what? Since that day, God has broken that drug addiction off of my life. He said, I am a new guy. And it was just powerful what the Lord is doing in his life. Anyway, you want that to happen in your life. You want to see miracles and victories flowing into your life. You want to see the favor of God pouring into your lap as never before. You must choose your relationship with Jesus Christ as the most important priority of your life. Not a partial priority, not something to think about, but the most important priority of your life if you want those things to happen. Jesus said it a different way. He said, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else will be taken care of. 
If you seek God first, whatever you want in your life, whatever you're long for deep in your heart will be taken care of if you seek first God. But if you don't seek God first and look for it out there, you're going to come up short every time. You might, you might get it for a season. You might get it for a little while, but it's going to leave you empty and depleted and, and destroyed on, uh, in the inner man. So Jesus must be first place in your life, your highest priority. You've got, and that's what it means to be, uh, to be spiritually healthy. Now, what I have learned as a Christian for so many years is that spiritual health are going to require that you and I make three very critical choices with our lives. Number one, you must choose to make Jesus your Lord, not just your Savior. He must be your Lord, not just your Savior. I, I ran across this article which intrigued me a few uh, months back, and this was the title of it. It's not okay to treat Jesus like a live-in boyfriend or girlfriend. He wants nothing less than full commitment. Let me give that to you again. That's quite a title, isn't it? It's not okay to treat Jesus like a live-in boyfriend or girlfriend. He wants nothing less than full commitment. Well, I was intrigued by the title. So I had to read the article to see what it said. And the point of the article is that we can't treat people like the world treats people. I'm sorry, we can't treat Jesus like the world treats people. In other words, we can't look at how the world works in terms of relationships and say that's good enough with Jesus. We, we, we can't treat him like we're trying him out, so to speak. And there are people, probably many Sundays, who commit their lives to Christ in this church, who have that kind of an attitude. They're trying Jesus out. That will never work. A number of years ago, there was a bumper sticker that a lot of Christians put on their cars that I remember when I first saw it, I thought, oh, that's really cool. But then it started weighing on me, and I, and I, it, well, I was bothered by it. It just simply said, try Jesus. And at first, I was excited about it. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, try Jesus, you know. And then, well, wait a minute. Is that right? Try, is Jesus someone you try? You see, the truth is you don't try Jesus like you try a pizza. You don't try Jesus like, like test driving a car or something. If, if I would have gone into my marriage like I was test driving Carrie, we wouldn't have gone too far with the whole thing. If, if I would have said to her, I'm going to give you a try for a little while and see if you can meet all my needs and make me just as happy as I believe I ought to be, you do that woman and I'm with you, but if you don't do it, I'm out of here. You know what she would have said to me? Get out of here right now. She'd have never walked down the aisle in the first place. Carrie wouldn't have accepted that, and neither will Jesus. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 10, 8, 38. If you refuse to take up your cross, wow, that's a hard word, and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. The word cross it just jumps out at you there, because at the point, the word cross speaks of death. 
Jesus died on a cross. Jesus suffered and bled on a cross. And Jesus says that I have to take up a cross? What does that mean? That we're going to have crucifixion Sunday next week and everybody who truly loves Jesus, we're going to crucify you. No, I don't think that's what it means. It does mean laying down your life for Jesus. And it may mean the loss of your earthly life because of your faith in Christ. And, and the centuries have been filled with the blood of the martyrs for the cause of Jesus Christ. So yes, it can mean that, but it's one thing to lay your life down in terms of physically, that can be very tough initially, that can be very difficult for a moment of time, but then it's over with and you're in heaven. What is even tougher is living for God, because that means daily death. Not on a cross, but dying to yourself. It's where you lay down your life for Jesus because he laid down his life for you. And that means that you give up your preferences, that gives up, you give up your desires, and you say, God, if in any way my life, my desires don't match yours, I give mine up to take yours on. I will do what you want me to do. I will go where you want me to go. I will be what you want me to be. I will say what you want me to say. That, that is the only way for you to grow spiritually into spiritual health in your life. There's no shortcut on this thing. You will not be strong spiritually if you only half-heartedly serve God. It just won't happen. You must decide to make Jesus not only your Savior, but the Lord of your life as well. So that is the first critical choice that you must make. Now let me give you the second critical choice that you must make. <clears throat> And if at any point along here you struggle with what I'm saying, you just listen to the whole thing, and then if you need to talk with me afterwards, we'll talk. The second thing I would say is don't take the world's values as your own. You've got to make a critical choice to not take the world's values and make them yours. You don't accept them, even if they're popular. If you want to be spiritually strong, you don't accept the world's values. If the world's values part company with godly values, which they usually do, you reject the world's values in favor of God's values for your life. And this is something that needs to be going on inside of your head all the time. Because we are every single day bombarded with a hundred, a thousand or more different values being from the world being shot at us. We need to have a, a filter, if you will, that goes around our head of godly values. And when worldly values hit it, it exposes it. And we say to ourselves, I reject that. I reject that. I will not live that way. I choose rather my love for God. I choose rather to live for the Lord. And that filter is not just how I feel about things, how I, what I like or don't like. That filter is based on God's word. So what does God's word say? And, and, and when you know God's word, it develops. The more you know God's word, the more it develops this filter around you that gives you the ability to say yes to this and no to that. 
And if you think life is all just yes, 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 you're in for a big fall. There is some no out there. And, and w there are times that we need, even if we want to do it, we need to say no to something because it's destructive to us spiritually. I, I have actually, and this is a soft way it work, one of the ways it works, I have actually watched some television programs that were funny at certain points, in, or you know, maybe it's a sitcom or something that's funny, and then all of a sudden, maybe overtly or maybe not so overtly, but it'll, it'll put in some sort of worldly philosophy or worldly value, and I have sat there and thought to myself, I reject that, I will not accept that into my life. You have got to be willing to do that, to make those kind of judgments and say, this is the way I'll live my life and this is not, because I want to glorify God with my life. So I say in my heart, I reject what I just saw. I will not accept that into my life. Romans 12, 1 and 2 puts it this way. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, sometimes living for God is sacrificial, you know? Some, sometimes we have to say no to things that we want to say yes to, but it's the kind of life that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Look at verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. That's talking about the world's values. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. How do you do that? You get into his word. His word changes the DNA of how you think. We are corrupted by the world's system of DNA, the, way, the worldly way of thinking. God's word gives us the ability to change the way we think. And that's the only power. That's why the Bible is full of living power. That's what it says about itself. It's uniquely different from every other book written upon the face of the planet. It has divine power, what is often called inspiration. It is God breathed into us, God breathing his life into us. It changes the way we think the more we are in that. And when we change the way we think, we learn what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Now, I don't know if you read the one-year Bible for devotional reading. I do. The reason I do is because it takes me through the whole Bible in a year. And so I've read it many, 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 many times. And I love reading the one-year Bible. Anyway, if you read the one-year Bible, it, uh, it, it divides daily reading into Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. And if you do read that, you know that just a few days ago, we were reading out of uh, Genesis chapter 6 and 7, which is the basic storyline of the flood and Noah and all that took place. I'm not going to go into that story with you because I know most of you even know, uh, most of you know it, but there... There was a part of Genesis 6 before the flood, before talking about the flood, that really caught my attention. And it's in verse number 2. And this is what it says. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, this is one of the really difficult portions of Scripture to understand because there's this debate going on about who were the sons of God and who were the daughters of man. And there's a lot of speculation one way or the other about it. But as I studied that out, 
And, and to tell you the truth, that's been a portion of Scripture that I haven't always given a lot of thought to because, I, well, who knows who the, who the sons of God were and who knows who the daughters of man were, so I'll just ignore it. But the Holy Spirit a number of months ago began dealing with me about that portion of Scripture. And then it came back up again when I was reading uh, devotionally here just a few days ago. And so I started thinking about it. Who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of man? Well, I want to share with you my take on what I believe to be the answer about who these two groups of people are. And I will give credit to Warren Wiersbe who, in his commentary on Genesis who really influenced my thinking along this line. The heart of the scripture story here can be summed up in one word. And that word is compromise. This is what happened. This is the storyline. Adam and Eve had a lot of children, sons and daughters. One of their children was particularly godly. His name was Seth. And one was particularly ungodly. His name was Cain. In fact, Cain, you know, murdered his, his older brother who was Abel. Cain murdered Abel. Abel was older than Seth. Abel was godly, but Cain hated him. Sin entered Cain's heart, and he murdered his older brother out of jealousy. But Adam and Eve had another son to take Abel's place, and his name was Seth. And Seth continued the godly line. Seth produced a godly line of children, and that's who the sons of God are. A godly line of, of um, Seth's children. Cain, on the other hand, who based his life on violence, evil, his offspring were ungodly, and they are referred to here as the daughters of man. So what's the compromise then? In this scripture, Satan is getting the godly offspring of Seth to compromise their standards by mixing with the ungodly line of Cain, the daughters of man. You get that? The godly line of Seth is being tempted by Satan to merge with and associate and mix with the godly line or the ungodly line of Cain with the intention of compromising the faith of Seth's children, his godly line, weaken their faith, weaken their full devotion to the Lord. And as you read the story, that's exactly what happened. The godly line allowed the ungodly line to influence them and to drag them down. So that the compromise eventually was so severe that it brought the judgment of the flood upon the earth. And listen, Satan's tactics have not changed through the years. That is still his plan for you and me. To get us to compromise our full devotion to the Lord and to weaken our faith and if possible to get us to walk away from it. So how does he do this? He does it by getting you to accept the world's values as your own. To say, well, it's not that big of a deal. And we begin to compromise ourselves. And I'm going to give you an opinion here. 
But I believe that the most powerful way Satan tempts to corrupt people, all people, even God's people, is through sinful sexual choices. Now, last week, I shared from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and of course, I was talking about how God cares about the body, that that was the general overarching theme of 1 Corinthians 6. But today, I want to look at specifics of what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 6. So I want us to revisit just three verses, 18, 19, and 20. Paul says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. Underline that in your notes. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. So that means this is really important. For sexual immorality is a sin against yourself. It feels good, but you're actually destroying yourself, it says. Don't you realize that your body, of course he's talking to Christians here, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Now, we live in a culture today that accepts no sexual boundaries. Everything is permissible. Adultery, which is, of course, sex with someone other than your married partner. Fornication which is premarital sex, bisexuality, which is sex with both those of the opposite sex and those of the same sex, bisexuality. Along with that, of course, is homosexuality and lesbianism, which is sexual conduct with people of of the same sex as you are. I think most of us know what pornography is, voyeurism, the attachment to images and actions that cause sexual uh, temptation and, and lust in your own heart. And on and on and on we could go. Some of the things that we could talk about are so bad, it would be embarrassing for me to be up here and talk about it. So we won't talk about those things necessarily. But just to say it goes on further than this. And, and, and I really believe that even polygamy will make its way back to the surface in American culture because America has no moral high ground anymore to oppose it. All right, so I, I think it's coming back. Our culture says that everything is permissible. And anyone who challenges that is called a bigot, called a hater, is called out of step with the times, is someone to be silenced. And while the world system may silence voices that will will declare truth in God's word, the world system can never silence God's word. You can never stop God from saying what is true. So with that in mind, because God's word will not conform to pop culture, I want to talk with you about three things that I think the scripture teaches with regards to sexual sin. The first one would be this, that sexual sin will destroy you. Go back to what 1 Corinthians 6 said. 
I told you to underline the verse. It destroys your own body. It destroys you. That's why 1 Corinthians 6 is so strong about this. There is a, a powerful, corrupting impact affecting not only the body of the person involved in sexual sin, but also the mind and the soul of that person so involved. In fact, I found it very interesting in reading Genesis chapter 6 that after moving past the compromise of the sons of God with the daughters of men, after moving past the compromise of what happened there and the sexual involvement that was taking place there, the scripture moves in to talking about um, further corruption of society through violence. And, and I don't know that you, I've never done a study, I don't know there's study out there that you can say wherever sexual sin becomes very dominant that violence also becomes dominant. But I think that you can pretty much observe that that is true. The more corrupted a society becomes sexually, the more corrupted it becomes violently or by violence. Verses 11 and 12 of Genesis 6 says, the earth was depraved. Now this is after the sons of God, daughters of men thing. The earth now is depraved, it's putrid. That's an interesting word, putrid. Uh, putrid refers to decaying flesh. So if you were around a dead body that had been dead for a while or a dead, uh, a dead anything that's been dead for a while, it will be putrid in its smell. And it says that the earth had become that in God's sight and the land was filled with what? Violence, which is defined as desecration, infringement, outrage, assault, and lust for power. And God looked upon the world and he saw how degenerate, debased, and vicious it was, for all humanity had corrupted their way upon the earth and lost their true direction. Sexual sin destroys not only the person who is involved with it, but if enough other people become involved with it, it can destroy a family, it can destroy a neighborhood, it can destroy a community, it can destroy a whole society, and that's exactly what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Number two, God's people are to flee from sexual sin. That means we are to be pure sexually. We are to be a holy people, which means we have got to filter out what the world is giving us and reject that which is ungodly, no matter how popular it might be. We need to reject pop culture's values of sex before marriage or pop culture's values of sex outside of marriage vows as being acceptable because they are not acceptable to God. And we're to understand that God created sexual union of a husband and a wife as the image of a spiritual union between God and his people. And that's why homosexuality is considered such a sin in God's eyes, because it distorts the image of union between a man and a woman that produces life. The union between God and his people produces life. It's spiritual life. 
But when we make sex all about us and our desires and our pleasure and our needs and fulfilling my needs, that is such a selfish way to live our lives. That's the reason why it can then pervert into violence. Because then everything becomes selfish about life. And that's why it perverts God's original intention and why God calls it sin. Um, Sister Rebecca gave me an article. I haven't read it yet. She just told me a little bit about it from Time Magazine. Is it Time? Newsweek. Yeah, from Newsweek about the Bible. You know, and I think the subtitle is What Does It Really Mean or something like that, if I recall. Yeah, it's so misunderstood it's a sin. The writers of that article, according to what she shared, I haven't read it yet, but according to what she shared with me, is it's, it's just, they, they don't get it. That is for sure. They're missing the whole point of the whole thing. Whoever wrote the article or who, whatever group of people wrote the article. What God calls sin is, is sin for a very particular reason, regardless of how popular it is. Number three, sexual sinners are loved by God. And they are loved by this church, by Life Church. Because every single one of us are sinners in this place. If you have been caught up in sexual sin, I want you to know that God loves you and this church loves you. But what is so important is that we allow God to change us. Not just to love us, but to change us. Because if we aren't changed, we go right back to the same old behavior that brings the guilt in the first place. One of the, thing, the scriptures that has really touched me through the years is that 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We usually focus on the forgiveness part. That's very important, but you've got to take in the second part too, which is cleansing. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. If you're not cleansed, you go right back to the same old behavior again. You'll do it all over again. And then you feel terrible about yourself. And then the devil comes along and says, see, this doesn't work for you. That's what he'll tell you. It doesn't work for you, so bail out on it. Get out now. Don't live under the guilt. The problem is the guilt follows you. You can't get away from it. You got to get right with God. And you can get away from it for moments of time, but down deep in your soul, it's there. The reality is we as a church want to help you and help ourselves to all change to become what God wants us to be. Life Church is not here to condemn you. Life Church is here to help you to, be, to live your life free from Satan's bondage. We don't, we don't hate anyone. But some people define love as, as never being willing to confront error. God's word tells us that real love, true love, is a willingness to expose error, but to do it in a loving and an affirming and a hopeful way. If you have been bound by error, and we all have been, there is hope for you. If you're in pornography, there's hope for you. If you're into homosexuality, there's hope for you. If you're into an adulterous relationship, there's hope for you. If you're living with someone you're not married to, there's hope for you. God will set you free from this stuff and, and make you into a better person than you ever dreamt you could be. 
Jesus put it this way to a woman who was caught in adultery, John 8, 11. Neither do I condemn you, but look at the last part of the verse. Go and sin no more. In other words, you fall right back into condemnation again. You got you to quit doing what got you there in the first place. So it doesn't matter what your sin is. I just want you to know that God loves you and that we love you too. So your, your spiritual health requires first making Jesus your Lord and second, not taking the world's values as yours. And the third thing I would say is a third critical church choice is you got to learn to love Jesus. Learn to move into a love relationship with Jesus. That's what it's all about. It's not about religion because religion is just man-made rules and pious acts that we think if we do them, God will like us better. You know, that'll put us in good with God, you know, if we do all these good things. If I do all these good things, I give this much money to the work of God or the church or whatever, then God owes me to hear my prayers and answer them the way I want. And we get that thought in our mind. That that's, the, that's the way we just think. It's not about religion, folks. It's about a relationship with God. It, and, it, and it's about learning to love God because God's not just interested in your actions. He, inter he is interested in that, but he's more interested in your heart. Matthew chapter 22 tells us about a Pharisee who came to Jesus and he tried to trick Jesus by asking this question. Verse 36, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And he thought he was going to get him on that one. And Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Okay, so we are to love God. Is that just a warm, fuzzy feeling? No, God's word tells us how that's defined. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we find that God's love is defined by our willingness to follow Jesus and to keep his word. So do you want to be spiritually healthy? If you do, then you have to learn to love God with everything that you are and everything you have and follow his word. Let him set the rules for your life. And really what I'm talking about here is sanctification. Sanctification is a Bible word that simply means to be set apart as holy. Or within the context of what we're talking about this morning, it means becoming like Jesus And when I thought about sanctification, my mind immediately went to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. And I thought about the first part of this verse which, where it says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. But I didn't even think about the fact that the last part of the verse says exactly what we're talking about here, specifically, that you, shouldn't, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And I thought, wow, maybe that's God, I don't know. So sanctification is this process of allowing God's spirit to work in you to make you holy. You have to allow that to happen. In fact, sanctification is the primary work of the spirit within the believer between justification, which is getting saved, and glorification, which is going to heaven. In between getting saved and going to heaven, in between these two, God's spirit is working 
to make you holy, to make you more like Jesus, to sanctify you. But you've got to let the Spirit do His work within your life. And that, friends, is called surrender. If you let Jesus, if you are willing to surrender yourself completely to God, you will become spiritually strong in Christ. You will walk with strength. This will be a year of victory in your life. You're not going to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. But you're going to be strong in your relationship with God. I've gone over a little bit today, but I hope that what has been shared has been incredibly helpful for how we need to think about critical things that are happening in our culture today and how we need to respond to those things. We respond with love, but we also respond with truth. And I want God's truth to set you free. How many of you believe the truth will make you free? That's what God's word says, amen? Here at Live Church, we pray that you have a blessed week. Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can always go to lifechurchutah.com.